and welcome to Business Without My name's Dominic Frisby and this week we round up some of our favourite moments from this month's episodes in conversation with Richard Selm of Startup Bootcamp Australia and entrepreneur Tom Graham. But with a bit of a twist, we've put them together with some new unheard parts of the conversations. You'll hear Tom about experiences living in China and what he learned about the Chinese way of life and the differences between Eastern and Western cultures. He also talks more about his time working at Harvard, its social structures, and gives comparisons to education in Australia. Richard also dives deeper into crowdfunding and which sectors are the most appealing in Australia, as well as giving tips on the best and cheapest investment platforms to consider. Okay, let's get to it. Okay, let's talk about crypto. You've obviously been in crypto for a while. So let, let's start with the big question. How, how big an impact is it going to have on the world? Um, I think that uh, you'll struggle to find somebody who knows much about it who says that it won't have a really huge, significant impact. Uh, and that's, I think, probably to do with trust and, and not having to trust intermediaries. But um, I think the, the most interesting part of that story we've seen kind of unfurl in the last... Uh, six months or so, where uh, institutions from traditional finance um, and companies like MicroStrategy, et cetera, um, and Square have started to um, bring Bitcoin onto their balance sheet um, as an alternate asset, uh, as an alternative to cash, US dollar cash. Um, and then the institutions have been accumulating Bitcoin positions um, and Ethereum positions potentially, but pretty much limited to those two because they're the biggest assets with the most volume um, and liquidity. So um, that's a real monumental change from what had been happening for the last 10 years before that, um, where institutions, and by that I guess I mean um, white men between um, 50 and 70, um, had wholly dismissed the technology and Bitcoin. But there is a big shift uh, currently towards um, adopting it as an alternative to uh, either as a, uh, an asset that accretes in value because it's depreciary uh, versus inflationary, right? Um, or as some way of offsetting um, inflation risk, right? Uh, from holding large amounts of US dollars on your balance sheet if you're a company. So that, that's a big shift. Um, and People have been talking about that happening for a very long time, but the fact that it's actually happening, I think, um, is is really significant. I noticed that like mad. I was born in 1969. I'm 51, and uh, I'm right on the divide between the two. But sort of prior to 2011, I used to go to, well, even more recently than that, I, I used to go to gold and gold mining conferences. And there are a lot of people who go to gold and gold mining conferences who are worried about inflation, worried about money printing and all the rest of it. And their go-to asset is gold. And I, so I'd go to these gold conferences and I would be the youngest person there. And then I wrote the first book about Bitcoin back in 2014 and I'd go to Bitcoin conferences and I'd be the oldest person there. And there's this, like, you know, Bitcoin, the new narrative is Bitcoin is gold 2.0. And there's so much sort of crossover between the two communities in the Venn diagram. But basically, Bitcoin's done everything that gold was supposed to do. And you know, hopefully the more enlightened of the old fogies are now slowly coming over to the other side. Yeah, I think that um, that the, the, the role that gold played in the economy um, and the way that certain groups of people thought about it uh, for the last, you know, 60 years, um, Bitcoin is kind of rapidly replacing that. Um, and it is a better 
alternative in, in many, many ways. Uh, one, because, you know, I think gold supply increases at something like 2% a year. They just dig up more gold. Um, there is always a mechanism where if gold goes through the roof, um, more gold miners start mining more gold and funding more projects. Well, that's the theory, but it doesn't actually work like that. <laughs> um, let me discount that theory because by by saying that, you're imbuing gold mining companies companies with a competence that they don't actually have. And the idea that you can just increase gold supply when the gold price goes up, it just never actually works out that way in principle. And it's a, it's a very hard thing to do, produce gold. It takes many years, and that's one of the reasons it's so valuable. Um, so I hear the argument the gold price goes up and production increases. But in reality, if you look at the, the inflation of the gold supply uh, over many tens and hundreds of years, it actually grows at precisely the same rate as population growth. So in that way, it's actually quite a natural form of money. But but anyway, sorry to uh, take the other side of that. But yeah, no, 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 that's fair. That that regardless of how growth grows, as it were, um, Bitcoin um, has a very very fixed supply, um, which is very predictable, um, and a large portion of Bitcoin has already been um, kind of locked away and the keys have been lost, et cetera. So maybe a third of all Bitcoin could be discounted because they just will not circulate um, ever. And then um, the number of Bitcoin that enter the Bitcoin network uh, on any particular period, um, you know, kind of asymptotes towards zero um, uh, in in a hundred years or so, so that um, is very predictable. Um, and at some point, there will be no more bitcoins left to create. And uh, this takes you know like one variable in the formula of trying to work out what it might be worth away from that equation. Um, beyond that, um, it's very easy to transact, etc. Um, you know, you could move a um, hundred million dollars of bitcoin uh, in. 20 minutes um, with a couple of clicks, um, but you can't really move $100 million of physical gold um, very easily um, at all. Uh, so there are lots of practical things um, that, that are good about it uh, and, and why people like it. You know, the people who are really focused on having that kind of asset in the economy, um, you know, gold or Bitcoin or something, which is a, a counter narrative to, um, you know, sovereign backed uh, fiat currencies. But um, it's certainly growing in popularity. So, Richard, when I look at crowdfunding, which is sort of connected to startups in that a, a lot of startups rely on crowdfunding, there are two sectors that more often than any other sector seem to successfully raise money. And one of those two sectors would be tech and the other would be food and drink. Do you have sectors that you like you have sectors that seem to do better than other sectors is it just that tech and food and drink you know ordinary investors can understand it is that why they successfully raise money what what's your favorite sector i suppose is my question yeah for us we've been investing in sort of four main sectors here in australia and it's based off of the market opportunity in australia and i guess that's you know fairly similar to to the united kingdom and crowdfunding there i mean you see a lot of you know, financial services, fintech companies getting funding. And that's because, you know, like a lot of people who work in the financial services, A, they have a disposable income. They don't mind having a bit of a bet. Um, they know their industry. They know what things are coming, what areas of their business are vulnerable to disruption. And so if they see some smart ideas coming along, they're far more likely to, to chuck some money in because they come from a position of knowledge um, from that industry. So 
I mean, in, in Australia, it's it's similar. Like, what are the opportunities in the Australian marketplace? And those are the areas that we have been uh, traditionally investing in. So, energy is one. Smart energy, the Australian market, the way that it's um, it's structured, the uh, the lack of uh, government policy has meant that uh, there's been huge fluctuations in um, in spot prices in Australia, which which means that there's a lot of pain in in the energy market here for consumers, exasperated by the fact that there's a huge uptake of uh, of solar panels, so a lot of people are generating their own electricity, which may, and we've got a massive grid, small population. The grid needs to be sustained, so yeah, that gets distributed uh, across bills. And so when there's less people paying bills because they've got solar panels on their roof, you know that, that all these all these different factors mean that uh, mean that there's a lot of opportunity, but there's also a lot of pain in the energy industry in Australia. Um, so we've been you know, sort of focusing in on that, um, and then financial services, similar reasons to Australia, so fintech. Um, we've got a, a big superannuation. Uh, we've got a superannuation industry here, which is uh, you know like a, a forced uh, forced savings uh, as part of your wage instead of pension funds. So there's a there's a whole lot of disruption happening in financial services and uh, in regulation and stuff like that in fintech. So that's another a great opportunity for us here in Australia. Um, food tech, like as you said, there there's um, heaps of opportunities in in food. I mean, it's something that everyone consumes every day regardless you know like it's an industry that stays stays consistent and and there's more and more pressures on supply chains and and things like that um and then the the fourth area is sport so you know i mean we joke in melbourne you know we call ourselves the sporting capital of the world if you google it you'll find that 50 percent of parochial uh, melburnians are saying yes yes we are and then the rest of the world are sort of laughing at us but in terms of sporting clubs and things like that we certainly punch above our weight in terms of the major events that we've got um, in the city of Melbourne, it's um, it's it's pretty impressive, but you know nowhere near the amount of money that's um, thrown around in the Premier League or anything like that. I went to China about twenty years ago, and um, maybe it's me being paranoid, but I just felt there was a, just generally a contempt among Chinese for white people. Uh, there was a really sort of I just encountered this attitude frequently. Is that something you observed in your time there, Tom? Actually, no. I would say that my experience living in China 15 years ago, um, uh, and I lived in big cities like Beijing, and I lived in um, rural towns uh, like one on the border of North Korea, so quite a spread there, right? Um, yeah, I'm talking specifically about Shanghai because that's the only place I went to. <laughs> in fact, one particular area of Shanghai. <laughs> no, I was there for a few weeks, but I but... think that, uh, this this for me this phenomenon is not um, unusual uh, to hear someone say something like that, and and I think it's explained by um, if you are a tourist and you turn up in China, you're probably going to be streamed into um, a set of experiences and interactions with people who work in tourism in China. And unfortunately, um, white tourists in places like China are bad people. They are not particularly nice. Um, they are very demanding, often very rude. They don't understand anything about the culture um, or necessarily particularly respect um, social norms uh, or cultural norms. So in general, if you're a hospitality or tourism worker in China, um, you spend a lot of time with people who are not very nice to you. And so um, I've seen definitely um, different sets of behaviours towards uh, foreign tourists um, from the people who have to deal with them all the time, right? Um, then say if you were to go out to um, a, a town that doesn't see a lot of tourism or spend time with people in China or then if you can speak Chinese, you're interacting with them on, on their level in their language. Um, they are um, 
wonderful people uh, with no, not any different than you'd expect people in rural England to be to a, a bunch of nice people who turn up and are very nice, right? <laughs> so there's no, um, I never detected any kind of uh, dislike, um, a lot of curiosity, um, a lot of interest and um, a lot of warmth and friendliness. Uh, and you get that across many, many places where um, you know, if you think about the Middle East, etc. cetera. Um, but I definitely understand what you're saying um, in the context of interacting with people who have to deal with tourists all the time. Um, it's a stressful job. And uh, I, I think I know what you're describing, but I wouldn't say that it's endemic in any way of how Chinese people think of it. Yeah. I guess that's slightly, it's a bit like the reverse you get in America. And I mean, Tom, you're, you're someone who's, who's sort of British, Australian, American. You're, you're, you're a funny old um, mix. But in America, you get yeah. the perverse. You turn up in America and like, I have to like, cope with it for the first day or two as a British person because it's such bullshit. It's well, just like... Yeah. Well, yeah, but let me just qualify that, Andy, because I think I, I think it's the same... I mean, it might just be a cities thing because, for example, you know, if you go to most of America and people hear the English accent, you know, everyone loves you and, oh, my God, I love your accent and all that. But if you go to New York or LA, they've heard yeah, it all yeah. before and nobody gives a shit. Yeah. <laughs> so it might just, and you know, Londoners are famously rude. And so maybe, you know, what I encountered was just, you know, the Shanghai equivalent. I wonder whether the, you know, it's not far off. You have Skype now doing automatic translations and you can see now with remote working, we could put on our nice Quest headset and sit in a meeting room. And you think the next thing is going to be, can I put on a cultural thing? So basically it picks up my body language as a British person and it translates it into Chinese body language and Chinese language. That would be fucking interesting, you know, that I could go into a meeting and say, this bloke's annoying the shit out of me. Put a headset on and go, oh, right, yeah, what a, what a lovely man he is. That would be, um, that would be fun. It, might, it, it, it must happen eventually. It's almost necessary, you know. It's really um, nuanced things that make a huge difference. So um, particularly one phenomenon that you see in um, China um, people who have lived there, they may be expats, they're working as teachers or something like that, maybe specifically in Shanghai or one of the other big cities. Um, they don't speak any Chinese and they don't understand any Chinese and they communicate through translators. Maybe they work in an international school. Um, and uh, there is a different cadence to Chinese language being spoken. And um, quite often people will be having quite a um, fun and playful interaction to Chinese people. But the white person from the UK or, or Australia, they will think that these two Chinese people are yelling at each other. Um, because if you take that tone and the cadence um, and the rhythm of the conversation and you translate it with kind of an English lens, it looks like they're aggressive. And so um, suddenly they're surrounded by social interactions that seem quite aggressive. And over time, over six months, um, these people descend into the heart of darkness. And I've seen expats kind of go really extremely weird um, through social isolation and believing that they are constantly surrounded by this like quite kind of aggressiveness, um, where in, in fact they just have no idea what is going on whatsoever. Um, and uh, everything is very, very normal, um, but they, they start to lose touch with reality. So, um, you know, if you could have a, a technological program that, that helped people overcome really things that are on such a, a nuanced level, um, that, that would be good because translators, you know, having a, a, a person translate for you uh, doesn't help with that kind of stuff necessarily. That would, be a, that would be a killer app. I meet people now and they just start chucking them on the table, going, oh, I've got a Starling bank, I've got this bank, I've got that bank. That's the sort of, you know, that's the way. But then it's like, well, how are you keeping up with 
all the different services. And, you know, I, honestly, I don't know how people do it, really. I mean, which one you, uh, out of interest? I don't know if it's uh, information you can share, Dominic. What what have you done? In, if you want to go buy shares, what have you done? Gone to a traditional broker or for your kids and stuff? Uh, well, I use a broker called Interactive Investor only because it's, you know, the cheapest one. Not anymore. <laughs> well, I mean, it was five years ago. No, I mean, I got so pissed off with them. They, they. Oh, is there is there a cheaper one? Yeah, yeah. For ISAs. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, things like uh, free trade. Th- there's a lot of new emerging players in the marketplace. So, free trade's one that's a UK based. Um, they have ISAs as well. And the clues in the name with them, I assume, is it? You know. Yeah, it is. So there's a set, obviously, a set fee for the ISA, but um, yeah. But the, the downside of that is, yeah, you know, like, I mean, everyone thinks that they're a stockbroker because you get free trades. Why do you need to update someone anyways holding shares? I mean, you, you do wonder, really, but I guess I guess they need to know. It's the laundering thing again, isn't it? Where's the tax, money from? Tax, Andrew, tax. Oh, uh, right, yeah. Yeah, very clever. Got to squeeze the people. It's quite an alumni, the Harvard thing, isn't it? I mean, the few going to Harvard, it, 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 you know, I went to, oh, fucking hell, I'm going to admit it. I went to Eton and I hated it. But anyway, I did. And people always like, oh, well, it's all about your phone book. I mean, I remember having a row with this guy who was in the government who said, oh, well, if you wanted, you could ring up David Cameron and get the VAT rate changed. I mean, I couldn't have been more fucking angry. Like, I was just like, I don't know. I was like, maybe 200 years ago, that's how it rolled. I was like, you know, (laughs) maybe I could get a meeting with him. Maybe if I made enough fucking phone calls and I had no friends at Eton, but maybe... I could get a fucking meeting with him, but I went into the meeting and said, do you think you could change the VAT rate, David? You know, really sort me out. <laughs> I mean, it fucking, uh, you know, like, the, and the concept of people like that, so that, that, you know, I ain't found the phone books done me any favours, but when I meet people who went to Harvard or what's the other one, Berkeley, is it Berkeley in California? It, they Stanford, do, Stanford, that's yeah. the other one. They do seem to be a kind of like a real connector of ideas and, you know, is that fair? It's been a big part of sort of your network, I guess. Yeah, I I think that um, uh, certainly, yeah, um, they do a tremendous job in those big institutions of um, bringing together uh, a huge number of really smart um, and interesting people um, uh, in one place. Um, And then uh, they drive people very, very hard. So, you know, when I went to university in Australia before, um, where I went to law school originally, um, pe- you, you just weren't driven as hard. You didn't have to do as much work. There wasn't as much responsibility. Uh, I have friends who've been to Oxford and Cambridge and describe it as equally difficult um, as, say, like the workloads, et cetera, at Harvard. And so you got that combination of um, being able to select um, uh, the best um, and brightest, uh, I think is how they refer to it, um, but then also uh, this crucible of um, of hard work, right, over time. And, and that generates a lot of opportunities um, and interactions between people. So that's good for generating innovation. And then on top of that, um, you know, a big difference between, say, Harvard in Boston next to MIT and um, Oxford um, is that there's just a tremendous amount of money uh, that can flow towards innovative projects coming out of, say, MIT, um, and a tremendous amount of support. So there are dozens, hundreds of people around there who have built up big companies, big technology companies who can help somebody who's trying to do that. But that's not the case um, in Melbourne, where I am from, or even London, Oxford, you know, which have a little little bit of that. It's just not the case. Yeah. But is Harvard um, privileged? Like, do you, to get into Harvard, is it about, I mean, is it just you've got to 
kill it on the IQ test and 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 be able to catch a flight, or is it? My my understanding is that um, in, we have to divide this between their undergraduate right um, and uh, their postgraduate schools. So um, law school is is a graduate school, right, and same as a business school. But their undergraduate, which is called Harvard College, uh, I believe that. Um, you have to take some tests and, and those are important, but I think about 25% are considered legacy um, admissions. Um, and then another 25% or so are, um, maybe they don't have the highest tests and test scores in the world because people who you know, just te- get 100% on standardized tests may not necessarily be the best people to live with or to build a community with. So I think they have um, a section which is also for people who are um, really great uh, people and good at bringing other people together, um, and they may not have the highest test score, but they try to craft a community out of um, really people who test very well and people who have achieved a lot by the time they're 18, um, and then people who are really great at building community. Um, and then obviously diversity um, plays a big role, but uh, they have to build it also around this kind of like legacy set, um, which may be 25% or something of admissions, uh, not 100% sure. I mean, privilege is a really complicated conversation because what I find when I really get into it is that it's a lot about your parents and what, how hard they try to make sure you had a good education and look after you. And, and so you can get into conversation with someone, they're like, well, it's not fair. I want the same opportunities you have. And then it's like, I start thinking, well, you want the same parents as I've got. Then is that what you're saying? Because... Your parents, one was an alcoholic and that's shit for you and this happened to the other one and stuff, but is society most to make up that gap? That's why I get stuck with privilege because there's so, I've had, I've had to hide over my privilege over the years, you know, because I, you know, a lot of people have a big problem with it, you know, and you, you get a lot of uh, resentment and stuff and you're kind of like, sorry, I, fuck, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't feel like a privilege being locked up in boarding school to me, but you know, there we go. But I, I mean, I don't know what you feel about that. I find it a really complicated thing. And what, I don't know what your parent, I can't remember. I think your dad's American or your mum's Australian or something, isn't it? Or no, their um, dad's Australian and mum moved from London to Australia when she was six years old. So I'm um, as Australian as you could get, but then also um, British passport and British heritage. Did they push you hard when you were young? Were they like, come on, Tom, and like my dad's done to me, <laughs> let's kick my ass? Yeah, Australia's really lucky in that um, uh, historically there's a lot of wage equality, right? So we don't have an aristocratic class per se. Um and uh, it's quite easy for a plumber to earn as much money as a lawyer. Um, and that's what the wage equality is. So um, when you think about um, access to, and then when you think about getting into the um, elite high schools, generally you have to pay for them in Melbourne. It's a bit different in Sydney, but in Melbourne you have to pay for them. And um, uh, they are not really attainable. But if you want to, you know, take on a mortgage, if you're middle class and you want to take on a mortgage um, and, uh, you know, this is what it was 20 years ago, right? Obviously it's different for millennials now, given that house prices have gone up, et cetera. But ignoring that 20 years ago, um, you could come from lots of different sectors of Australian um, society and send your kids to a really good school. Where that's not the case in the US. Uh, It's not the case in the UK, right? So um, that is a more broad brush equality um, which is across Australia. And, and so that's really good. Um, I don't see the same thing in the US uh, or the UK. And so I'm not, you know, super keen on that for my kids. But uh, I think that, you know, those kinds of outcomes uh, have a lot to do with the priorities of your parents, sure. Um, definitely I went to fancy high school with a lot of kids of recent immigrants, right? 
from places like Macedonia um, and Greece, you know, former Yugoslavia, and their parents worked really, really hard and they understood education. What is the sort of underlying thing that's going on? Because we're still, are we still in Afghanistan? I think we are, aren't we? We've still got troops there and stuff. I don't even know. No, because of COVID, they've all come home. Have they? Is that no, you, Jackie? <laughs> <laughs> is it, it's about sort of upholding some sort of trying to keep democracy upheld by training up armies and troops? You know, is it a sort of Cold War battle? I don't, I don't, what was it about in 2010? What were we doing there then? Yeah, I mean, then it was, you know, like there was a resurgence of the, the Taliban. I mean, 2009 was probably the, the worst year for, well, it was the worst year for the British Army, you know, like over 100, 100 British soldiers um, died in 2009. So it was really about regaining. Um, and when President Obama came in, like he was thinking about the decision. So should we withdraw and turn it into, uh, you know, like a counterinsurgency, opera, uh, sorry, um, like move away from a counterinsurgency and protecting the population um, and, you know, move it back to, to, to basically, you know, like focusing on al-Qaeda and, and having strike teams that, that basically um, sort out and killed the terrorists. Um, and he made the decision to surge and, you know, like, and try to regain peace. So at that stage, it's, it's trying to prevent a failed state, trying to prevent a vacuum. I mean, you saw what happened. He decided to pull troops out of Iraq and you saw what happened there with the ISIS, you know, um, taking over half the country and American troops having to come back in and help, you know, help clear it out. So it was really, you know, to prevent a vacuum, to prevent a, a failed state from occurring. And that's that's the reason why people are still there is, you know, I mean, they don't want to, you know, like you don't want to have another Somalia in um, in the Middle East. Mm. You allow allow um, crazy groups to gain control, you know, effectively because there isn't there isn't a sort of stable central um, central control over the country sort of thing. It's that it's that we're, we're, while there's a vacuum. Is there a duty of countries that can afford to do so, European, British, American, whatever, to to put in a sort of you know some sort of framework to keep the country functioning effectively and try and build up their natural resources? And I mean, it, it's um, it, it it we think it works, I guess, sort of. It's it's sort of it's it's devil to do, devil you don't, but it's better than doing nothing, is it? It's that kind of thing. Yeah, I think. I mean, you've often heard that the the thing that changes society more than anything else is educating women, you know, and now there's been 20 years where, you know, women, like previously, if you looked what what was happening in Afghanistan prior to, you know, September 11 and 2001 and um, and the American Americans first going in there and then all the NATO countries following, you know, like you've now had 20 years of females being educated, going to schools. Um, while we were there, you know, the uh, officer, a female officer cadet, uh, officer training school was established. So, you know, females now have, have opportunities that they never had, you know, sort of 10, 15 years ago. So it's, I mean, even it's going to be harder for the vacuum to turn back into what it was before because, you know, like a whole generation of, of females have been educated in the country. They're not going to allow that. You know, they've, they've established business, they've set up businesses, they've, you know, and so... So hopefully that that makes a big difference in the country. Given control of their yeah, given control of their reproductive system, so they're not you know I mean effectively treated like a like a farm animal or something like, and they're just on a constant conveyor belt of producing kids. You do those two things, and you know society changes. You know um, it becomes far more wealthier. It's the the best way of 
transforming a, a society, those two things. It's been proven time and time again. So that was this month's roundup here on Business Without A big thanks to our guests, Richard Selm and Tom Graham. And remember, if you have any thoughts on the show that you'd like to share, please leave a review and a comment on iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe so that you can catch the next episode. Until then, cheerio. Thank you.